The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I uh, thank you all for coming out tonight. It's a, a pleasure to be here, and thank you uh, to the National Committee uh, for for hosting me for this event. Um, so I'm going to talk to you tonight uh, about uh, some of the uh, overall findings from my new book. Um, I've been working on wind power in China for a long time, among other issues, but um, wind energy is is one of these topics that, uh, when I first traveled to China, um, probably 13 years ago or so, there were. A couple of wind turbines in China, and we've seen a real transition over the last decade in this sector. So it's it's been a really interesting uh, technology to look at as China broadly uh, develops low carbon technology. Um, so the book itself uh, runs through the the table of contents that you see here. I'm not going to try to cover the entire book for you this evening. Um, but I'm going to focus on a few uh, questions. So first of all, why do I look at China in this book? Uh, of course, um, China is important not just because of its role in global environmental issues, including climate change, but also the increasing role it's starting to play in innovation. I'll talk about that. Um, and I'm going to look at this question of how did China acquire wind power technology? Uh, what are the, the models they, of technology transfer they use? What was the role of foreign firms in bringing this technology to China and of intellectual property rights, as well as the domestic policies that um, encourage the sector? Oops. Um, and compare what, China's situ- what China did to what other emerging economies have done uh, in this sector and in others, and what they did well and, and perhaps not so well. Um, and then what they've been able to achieve, where, where they stand now, uh, what we've actually been able to see in terms of technological improvements that they've uh, been able to bring to this technology, cost reductions, and I'm going to talk a bit about other measures of learning um, as well as uh, new innovations, and then end with a, a bit of a discussion about why this matters, uh, why put this in the broader context, both in terms of the potential for scaling up low-carbon technologies around the world, um, as well as for increasing the innovative capacity of the emerging economies, um, and then what this also might mean for U.S. competitiveness, I live in Washington, this is something that gets talked about quite a bit. Um, industrial policy, WTO rules are all starting to um, look into renewable energy. Um, and then also for the U.N. climate negotiations, which is another area I follow and, and that, of course, China plays an important role in. Um, so just to give you a bit of context, um, China is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide on a national basis, responsible for about a quarter of global energy-related CO2 emissions. Um, But, of course, what we really are concerned about is not the snapshot of what's happening today, but the trajectory of where China's emissions might be going into the next couple of decades. These are the U.S. Department of Energy's projections of where China's emissions might be uh, in the next couple of decades. And you can see that any time you put China on a chart like this, it, it essentially throws off the scale of all the other countries. Um, the emissions growth that we're expecting to see in China uh, really dwarfs that of any other country in the world. Um, and if you look at what uh, China's in- installed electric capacity looks like today, uh, wind is just 6% of installed capacity. That actually translates into uh, just about 1% of electricity generation, a little over 1%. Um, but actually, wind is the third largest source of electricity generation in China as of this year. Uh, they get more wind from uh, they get more electricity from wind energy than from nuclear energy, um, and this is a, a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, hydropower and uh, coal power, in particular, are the, really the dominant sources of electricity. Coal's about um, 
uh, almost 80% of electricity generation and also about uh, two-thirds of total primary energy consumption in China. Um, and so I just should say that you know, my looking at wind is not to make the argument that wind is what is going to save China's, it's going to totally transition China's carbon emissions trajectory, it's going to substitute for all of China's coal consumption, it's going to solve their airpocalypse um, problems. That, that's not why I look at this technology. I look at it because it's one of the um, many low-carbon technologies that will play a growing role in China going forward, and, and one that can tell us about China's ability to transition to these technologies uh, to domestically manufacture and innovate in this area. Um, and the good news is that clean energy is is no longer, you know, a sort of a niche industry. It's it's actually a multi-billion dollar industry, depending on how you measure it. It's at least a $60, $70 billion annual industry. And actually, if you include all investment flows, R&D, und- undisclosed deals, this number actually gets up to uh, closer to $250 billion spent in this industry in 2011. That number actually larger than the total investments that went into the fossil fuel energy oh. sector worldwide. Yes. And um, and so this is not you know this is not a small industry. And then if you actually break this down, oh, was, yeah. What was the unit there? <laughs> Total investment in clean energy around the world, broken out by um, technology. If you can see the colors here, wind, solar, biofuels, and, and, and others. Yes, everything, everything all aggregated together. Yep. This is a database that um, the the United Nations Environment Program has been putting together uh, using data collected by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And so if you actually break those numbers that I just showed you into um, two countries on the chart on the left, you can see that China actually is one of the leading uh, countries that's that's uh, doing these investments, right? So this is actually a relatively recent phenomenon. Just in the last five years or so, China has risen uh, to the top of this chart. The U.S. actually... Uh, squeaked ahead of China, 2011 and, and 2012. The U.S. Uh, sorry, China's back in number one position. So China playing a really big role um, in this uh, clean energy investment uh, in terms of other countries in the world. And you also see uh, the emerging economies in general playing an increasingly important role in innovation in clean energy technology. So the chart on the right is actually showing you renewable energy generation patents that are filed under the PCT. Patents are just one measure of innovative activity, not actually a great one, particularly in emerging economies, but um, even by this metric, you can see that China is the fifth largest uh, patenter in renewable energy technologies, uh, right behind uh, Korea, Germany, Japan, and the U.S. And this is, again, this is a, a relatively recent thing. Uh, China wouldn't have showed up on this graph a few years ago. And if you actually break out the, the investment numbers, this is the last one I'll show you, by technology and by country, what really stands out is that wind energy in China is the single largest investment in any single technology, clean energy technology, in any country in the world over the last couple of years. So China wind energy in particular is just dwarfing even uh, Europe's investments in wind and solar energy over the last few years. So back in 2003, um, just to give you a sense of where the market was then, there were very few Chinese firms in the Chinese market. Uh, within the Chinese wind industry, it was primarily the big global players. Uh, so companies you've heard of, uh, Vestas is the largest Danish wind turbine manufacturer. Uh, there was a company, NEG Micron, uh, which was another large Danish manufacturer, which was um, went, went bankrupt and was purchased by Vestas right around this time, actually. And, um, and Goldwind, at this point, was the only 
Chinese-owned uh, leading wind turbine manufacturer that was active in China uh, back in 2003. Uh, the other companies that were there, Gamesa, a Spanish firm, uh, Nordex, a German wind turbine manufacturer. Um, and this, if you look at the global market shares for this time period, you can see most of the big players uh, were in China. GE was just getting to China, um, was just starting to enter the wind, en the wind energy industry there. Um, and uh, a few of the others hadn't yet entered. And so what I do in the book is to look at um, the role that these foreign, leading foreign manufacturers played in the Chinese market, how they evolved their technology strategy, and how they, uh, in some cases, transfer technology to China. So the main firms I look at uh, include Vestas and Nordex and GE, which I mentioned, as well as Goldwind. And then Suzlon is the leading Indian wind turbine manufacturer, which I'll talk about later, which I think is an interesting one to compare a bit to Goldwind in the China case. Um, because India is the other sort of big emerging economy country in terms of wind power development, and there's some interesting parallels in terms of how they've developed that market and also some uh, pretty big differences. So um, without going through this in too much detail, uh, a, a lot of what is sort of interesting to look at in the Chinese context is how these firms have not only gone through various mergers and acquisitions in their home markets and globally, but how this affected their technology decisions within the Chinese context. So um, to give you an example of this, NEG Micon, I mentioned, had been one of the largest Danish wind power manufacturers um, uh, back in the, through the 1990s and early 2000s until, and they were actually the largest foreign wind turbine manufacturer that was in China. Um, and they set up a joint venture with a, uh, a company right outside of Beijing, transferred uh, some of their technology to this Chinese company. But then when they went bankrupt and they merged with Vesta's, Vestas actually ended up um, closing down most of their China operations and instead setting up their own operations in China. And um, because of this, you actually saw some interesting things happen in terms of the former employees that had been trained in China, primarily Chinese nationals who've been working for NEG Micon, one of these you know, state-of-the-art uh, Danish wind turbine manufacturers have been trained in Denmark as well as around the world, ended up uh, going on to start their own wind turbine companies in China or their own consulting firms, et cetera. Um, so there was a lot of interesting learning and knowledge that got transferred throughout the sector uh, during this, this big layoff uh, by NEG Micon, uh, and I'll come back to that later. Um, another example, GE. Of course, GE really um, didn't enter the wind industry until relatively late compared to these other foreign firms. Um, they didn't get into it until um, actually when they ended up purchasing what was left of Enron Wind and uh, ended up building their wind market from there. And, of course, a lot of the IP, which is... Uh, that GE now owns came from a lot of the historical U.S.-based wind turbine manufacturers, which are, uh, for the most part now, have, have gone bankrupt or are no longer in business. A lot of some early ones from California, um, and this has affected their uh, strategy going forward. So while this was happening, while these firms were starting to move into the Chinese market, of course, what was really bringing them there were policy signals from the Chinese government to start to grow this industry. A couple that were uh, particularly important uh, back in 1997, there was something called the Ride the Wind program, which was the first policy that actually uh, it set up two government-facilitated joint ventures to manufacture wind turbine technology. So they essentially matched Chinese partners with foreign firms, one uh, from Germany, that was Nordex, and one from Spain. And uh, this was the first sort of Sino-foreign joint ventures in the wind power industry. Very much uh, set up by the government, didn't end up going all that well, um, and partly because you, in many cases, had the foreign firms 
participating in this joint venture, but simultaneously um, exporting their wind turbines from their home country straight into China and competing in many ways with their uh, joint venture operation there. So uh, it didn't always work out very well. Um, you also had money going into R&D uh, from the central government. Um, and then in 2003, uh, the first time uh, the government started to promote large-scale wind projects was through something called the Wind Concession Program. This was a, a bidding, a public bidding program, where um, the price for the power purchase agreement was set uh, by the tariff that had been bid in by these various companies. And this, the prices that came out of this program ended up being used to set what later became a feed-in tariff uh, which is nationally standardized at this point uh, throughout China for most large-scale wind power projects that went into effect in 2009. Um, also in 2009, the government announced six um, 10 gigawatt wind bases. So 10 gigawatts, if you know uh, anything about <laughs> energy scale, you know this is extremely large wind farm. These are the largest uh, wind farms that are being built anywhere in the world. Um, and these are this is you know the way that China is really building up their industry at this point. Um, another important policy that you may have heard about is the local content requirements. So these were uh, not so much policies, but in, in many different uh, of many of these uh, regulations that you see listed here, local content was rewarded in, in many different ways. So in the concession program, for example, um, as companies were bidding into these projects, if they could meet a higher local content requirement, they received a, a higher rating um, in the overall bid evaluation, had a potentially a better likelihood of getting the projects. Um, of course, there are some WTO issues with this, which have since been uh, raised, uh, not so much with China, but with several other emerging economies, and also with uh, uh, industrialized countries. Ontario right now uh, is uh, going through a WTO case uh, where Japan is challenging a feed-in tariff policy. They have to promote wind and solar, which requires local manufacturing, uh, local content requirements. So this is actually something that's um, there's probably some lawyers in the room that know more about this, but this is starting to, to heat up more in the renewable energy area. In 2009, um, then Commerce Secretary Locke traveled to China and actually asked China to remove the local content requirements for wind, and they did. Um, and so it never actually went to WTO, but partly this was because they had really served their purpose at this point. Um, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment. So um, what I look at in my work is sort of how these foreign firms at the outset uh, set up their facilities in China, whether they at the beginning were opting to import their technology from abroad, whether they decided to locally manufacture the technology, and whether they maintained control of their intellectual property or they transferred it to a Chinese partner. Um, and back in, in 2003, 2004, you saw quite a uh, diversity of approaches in, in, what, in how these firms were approaching their strategy in China. Um, but this eventually started to change. So, you know, we have the situation now where all the foreign-owned wind turbine companies have moved their manufacturing to China for the Chinese market. You have, you for the most part, don't have wind turbines being imported to China from Denmark or, or the U.S. at this point. All the big uh, companies that I just mentioned do have large factories in China, uh, Vestas, GE, etc. Um, and very few leading foreign wind turbine technology firms actually transferred any of their technology to China. Most of the ones that I just told you, with the exception of uh, NEG Micon's early joint venture and the sort of failed Nordex joint venture, had any official um, technology transfer uh, with Chinese firms. And yet, we now know that Goldwyn, the, the one company that I mentioned, has since been joined by at least uh, 30 
uh, Chinese firms that are able that are have already sold commercially viable wind turbine technology, and by some measures, there are uh, at least 80, possibly more than that, uh, in terms of companies that have some sort of wind turbine design that may have not yet been sold commercially into the market. So, what happened? What I look at is essentially this broader web of technology transfers, and don't worry if you can't see this slide in detail. I'll talk about what what matters. Um, you have this you know, network of, of how technology has been moving, not just to China, but from China at this point to other emerging economies around the world um, and the role that different companies have played in this. So Goldwyn, you can see here, is really at, in the middle of a network of um, technology that has moved through uh, various models. Uh, you mean in terms of capacity, or no? Actually, manufacturing units. What's the total unit volume? I only know total capacity, and it would sort of depend on the break. I'll, I'll show you some charts that will probably get at that if you want to divide out the. At the moment, I'll, only for the Chinese market. Yep, I'll sh I'll definitely get there. So, again, what I look at is basically all the different models and sources of technology transfer, and look at essentially that you can, you end up finding there's three main models that dominate the way that China got this technology. Uh, the first, of course, being licensing. This is a pretty traditional model of technology transfer. Um, the advantages of this being that um, a Chinese firm can obtain a technology that's probably already been field tested, it's already been used elsewhere, and, and acquire the rights to manufacture that technology within the Chinese market. Um, the downside of this is that if a firm is willing to license the technology to a Chinese firm, often we, what I found is that in this sector it's a smaller, outdated model, something they're not, not as concerned about uh, transferring. Frequently there will be restrictions with the license on IPR use, so this gets to your question. Once they want to start to export out of the Chinese market, often this is impossible if the license they were using was restricted to sales within the Chinese market. Um, and the other issue is that these are frequently non-exclusive licenses, so you see multiple firms getting the same license, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, increasingly, you see mergers and acquisitions playing a really important role in technology transfer in these firms. So um, the advantage of this being that if a firm can just go out and purchase outright majority control of another firm and obtain the uh, whatever intellectual property that they needed, as well as the sort of broader capacity from that firm, um, this can help them to build their own capacity. Um, but the challenges of this are that, of course, um, it's very hard for a new firm to do this starting out. It needs to be a firm with substantial financial resources that can just go out and purchase control of another firm. And also, they need the ability to integrate the new business knowledge into their own practice. There are often cultural issues here um, where you see uh, Chinese firms going out and purchasing other firms and not necessarily being able to, um, to work well with the, the new uh, partnership. And then lastly, the sort of third model is sort of a general category for what I'm calling joint development, which is really where you have a Chinese firm and a foreign firm somehow jointly developing a new wind turbine model or a component, a new intellectual property that they then have some kind of joint ownership of. And the advantage of this is that then you um, have less concerns about sort of the, the details of the IP if you've worked this all out up front, um, less concerns about competing with each other. Um, but the risks are that um, what you ended up seeing in a lot of the Chinese cases is you'll have a firm with a lot of manufacturing experience partner with, for example, a European, a German uh, engineering design firm that has no manufacturing experience, and they come together and, de and develop a new wind turbine design. Um, and you, you're sort of bringing these different expertise to the table, but the manufacturers don't necessarily know enough about the design to truth test it and, and vice versa. So there, 
several cases I saw where this ends up happening. Quick question. Yeah. To what degree is IPR theft a sort of report model a factor in, in uh, the turbine? Yeah, I mean, everything I'm going to talk about tonight is, is legitimate uh, IP transfer that happened through, and, and of course there are things that fall through the cracks, and there have been some high-profile cases recently, American Superconductor, which I'll talk about. Um, but you know everything I'm talking about tonight is is stuff that you can trace back to an actual agreement. So you know there's always it's it's very hard, of course, to get real data on on numbers of IP theft. But um, if they're if they're large, you end up hearing about them. Um, so I just want to briefly talk about a couple of of companies that I think have particularly interesting examples: um, Goldwind and Suzlon. So you know both of these firms being really leading winter manufacturers in their home markets, China and India, respectively. And it's interesting to look at their technology pathways together because they both started manufacturing wind power technology around the same time in the early 1990s. Uh, They both began by licensing uh, relatively basic wind turbine models from foreign firms. Um, And then as they became more successful, as they became larger, they uh, reached out to additional foreign partners, started to uh, do some mergers and acquisitions. You have Suzlon, a while ago, acquiring majority control of a leading U.S. gearbox manufacturer at that time, and so you know, sort of going through the supply chain and acquiring uh, control over different companies that would help to build their own uh, capacity. Goldwind partnered with a, a German firm, Vensus, which they originally um, they had started to work with, and uh, when there was an outside offer, they ended up uh, purchasing control of them outright, and are now partnering with them to do joint development on many new wind turbine designs. Um, and one thing I think that is, which I talk a lot about in the book, is, is this sort of broad idea of global learning networks. This is more of an academic term, but really the idea that um, Suzlon and Goldman have very different approaches to how internationalized they were in their global R&D, their, their sort of broader um, outward approach. Suzlon being a, a, this Indian firm that had extremely broad global presence, even in the very early years of their development uh, when they were looking to set up a global headquarters outside of China, they actually selected a, a city in Denmark, uh, the same place where, as I mentioned, NEG Micon had, had, had their headquarters, and there were many people that had been laid off, and they were able to uh, hire a lot of the workers that were in that industry and bring them into their own fold. And so there were a lot of, you know, again, ways that they were able to strategically position themselves globally to take advantage of uh, expertise in this area. Goldwyn did this a lot less. Uh, it's a partially state-owned a Chinese company. It's not surprising they weren't quite as sort of outward-looking and international at the outset, um, but you've seen them expand quite a bit just in the last few years, um, both in terms of sales offices. They now have an office here in Chicago, um, but they're also starting to look at doing uh, R&D uh, here as well. So um, jump ahead here. There's a, a couple companies that actually stand out as being common sources of technology IP, and know-how in this industry, which I think are somewhat interesting to look at. There's a variety of particularly German uh, as well as uh, American Superconductor, which I mentioned, have actually licensed or um, are involved in joint development in wind turbine technology, not just of uh, some of the Chinese firms that I mentioned, but actually many firms uh, around the world. So uh, Vences, which I mentioned, is the the company that Goldwyn now owns, um, originally had started working with uh, over a decade ago on wind power has actually licensed their technology to wind turbine manufacturers in India, Brazil, Spain, the Czech Republic, and Argentina. And this is actually encouraged by Goldwyn, or at least has been, um, as a way of expanding their, their knowledge base around the world. 
um, American Superconductor, in comparison, has licensed their technology to, uh, by my count, at least three Chinese firms. This is a bit outdated, so it, it could be more um, firms in Korea, India, um, and others. And, and these are all you know, firms with interesting sort of interrelationships. So um, this, of course, just has implications for, uh, as I mentioned, these non-exclusive licenses. And in terms of where a lot of these emerging economy firms are getting their information, it's coming from common sources. And this has implications for the actual designs themselves and for innovation, um, potentially, in the sector. Um, Korea is another case I look at in the book. I won't go into it in detail this evening, but this is, I think, an interesting case because uh, the Korean firms that have recently gotten involved in the wind power industry are firms that you've heard of. These are, this is Hyundai, this is Doosan, this is Daewoo. These are not small wind turbine manufacturers. These are large uh, global conglomerates that have decided to enter the sector, and they did this by many of the same technology transfer models that China and India did. Um, but if China and India were late comers to this industry, in many ways, South Korea is a late, late comer. Um, and so they had to compete with the, our pre-existing Chinese and winter manufacturers. Um, They're unlikely to do this on cost, so they ended up uh, moving directly into the most advanced wind turbine design, focusing primarily on offshore uh, designs, partly because this is potentially what technology might be mo most appropriate for the Korean context, but also because this is where uh, they could potentially compete, I think, with uh, some of the other emerging economy manufacturers. So, um, you know, where has China really come in all this? So, essentially, you can see uh, the red line here is China's wind power capacity, cumulative capacity installed over the last uh, decade plus, and these are uh, early estimates for 2012. And you can see that China's wind power capacity has essentially dwarfed that of, of any other country in the world. The U.S. is is in second, although we both installed roughly the same capacity annually last year. As this capacity has increased, you've, of course, seen the emergence of many, many new companies, as I mentioned, uh, Chinese-owned firms manufacturing for the Chinese market, uh, primarily wholly Chinese-owned firms. Um, and the real success story in the Chinese market has been this huge gain in market share that we've seen the Chinese manufacturers um, able to capture. Uh, so is there, just as recently as 2004, uh, the Chinese winter manufacturers, and that was essentially Goldwind at that point, had about a quarter of the Chinese market. Today, or 2010, this is actually probably a bit larger this year, um, the Chinese firms cumulatively have 90% market share in China, the foreign firms uh, just 10%. Of course, the total scale of wind power has, has gone up quite a bit during that time. So annually, uh, the foreign, uh, some of the foreign firms are still installing sizable um, wind projects in China, although... Uh, the competition is, of course, uh, increasingly fierce. Um, and we've also seen uh, a fair, uh, we've seen substantial price declines uh, in wind turbines being sold in China. It's a little bit hard to translate this into cost, but essentially, because particularly because some of the policies I mentioned, particularly the concession program, ended up leading to some gaming in terms of how the prices were set for these projects. Um, but just in the last few years, you've seen a pretty steady decline in the prices being offered not just by Chinese firms but by foreign firms, I think reflecting an overall uh, trend in, in the reductions of the technology by both, and this is within the Chinese market again. And then in terms of technological progress, uh, one measure of this for wind is that as the turbines themselves are getting larger and larger, um, you actually, uh, as the technology is advancing, the turbines are getting larger and larger. It's not a perfect proxy, but essentially... Um, this is the chart showing you the average installed fleet, if you will, of wind turbines that has gone in in China and, and several other countries over the last uh, decade plus. And you, and you can see, uh, if you go back to 1999, the average 
uh, wind turbine size installed in China was just 610 kilowatts, and by uh, 10 years later, um, by 2009, it was uh, you know one point over 1.3 megawatts. And of course, over that time as well, you saw this real transition uh, in market share, so from foreign firms to Chinese firms as this average size was increasing. Um, and then, of course, around China, you're seeing this real large-scale domestic expansion, and not just in terms of um, you know, actual wind power firms and uh, facilities, factories being built, but for the most part, those are going near where the actual wind farms are being built as well. So Inner Mongolia, for example, has been a real, um, has seen a lot of growth in, in the last few years, particularly because of its proximity to Beijing and uh, the uh, eastern part of Inner Mongolia being connected to the, the, the Beijing power grid. Um, but you see really limited overseas expansion. So um, I think one misconception is that China's exporting wind turbines all over the world. Uh, that is true in solar. Um, you know, until recently, the majority of the solar panels made in China were for export. That's actually starting to change as well uh, with new solar policies in China. But very few uh, Chinese wind turbines have been exported, even just components and everything uh, together. Uh, in 2010, total exports were just over 100 million, um, so relatively small compared to, to all their other sectors. Uh, but again, this is going to change, and these, the marks on this map are showing you sort of where Chinese firms are already starting to, um, Can you to get a hold. Can you cities, please, where in China, where they're actually utilizing wind power? Cities in China? I think Joanne has only got a few minutes left in her presentation, so can we make that oh, the sorry, first okay. question of the Q&A, okay, maybe? Right. I'll get back to you. Okay. So um, I think, you know, just in sum, uh, without going into too much detail, um, one of the interesting takeaways from this is that substantial technical advances are really possible in a short amount of time. Um, when we talk about how a lot of developing countries are going to transition to low-carbon technologies, I mean, China, India, and South Korea in less than 10 years had no wind power uh, capacity installed, no technical capacity to manufacture their own technology, and now they, they can you know, successfully manufacture um, the entire machine. Um, in terms of different models of technology transfer, I think we see the, the limits of licensing, which has been a really a very common one in the past, but, um, and, and one that can be beneficial to the transferring firm, um, but it comes with a lot of restrictions and limits, um, and the non-exclusivity issues I think can really have ne negative effects uh, in the long term and often doesn't come with sort of the broader know-how that the firms need. Um, and then I think tapping into these global innovation networks and, and global learning networks has been extremely valuable. Uh, Suzlon is a great example of this um, and it's something that a lot of the Chinese firms are starting to expand as well. Um, and Korea did this from the outset, I think, recognizing that it was the only way to go. Um, I think that uh, while most of the technology transfers I've talked about tonight were commercially driven, uh, the government did not play a very big role in facilitating these, with the exception of the couple that I mentioned early on, uh, which weren't that successful. I do think there's still an important role for governments to play in helping to uh, uh, make sure that the, you know, the actual wind power now that's being uh, developed in China, for example, is actually... Uh, doing what it's supposed to. So you may have heard that um, actually it looks like $1.6 billion or so uh, was uh, lost by curtailment. Essentially, uh, you have real problems with integration of wind power in the grid, transmission delays, and uh, delays in, in the actual developers being paid for the uh, power that they are selling to the grid. And so all these things together are resulting in real losses for the industry. And part of this just has to do with the technical challenges of integrating 
such a large amount of wind. I mean, China is really experimenting now with, uh, with penetration rates in certain parts of the country that are far larger, far exceed what Denmark ever had to deal with or, or you know, other um, European leaders. And so I think there's a lot of room for uh, improvement. Um, there's a lot of discussion broadly uh, in terms of how these policies that have been aimed at encouraging technology transfers may violate WTO agreements, and I think this is something we're going to see uh, a lot more attention on uh, in the coming years, particularly these local content policies. Other types of government subsidies are running into trouble as well. Um, but these trade conflicts, um, particularly the ones between the U.S. and China, are already spilling into a lot of the somewhat more positive clean energy cooperation that the two governments are trying to facilitate at the high level. It's, it's spilling into the U.N. climate negotiations and other places in terms of increasing tensions. And so I think this is uh, problematic. And lastly, I, I've been talking a lot about sort of commercially available technology. Wind power is essentially mature, low-carbon technology, but there's, of course, quite a lot of other technologies which are being developed, which we will need, which China will need, which have a lot, many more sensitive IP issues surrounding them and, and are much more challenging, um, not just for technology transfer, but for technology cooperation. Um, but I think that there's some really interesting ways that the government can actually play a role in helping to uh, set up IP frameworks that can create uh, more, that can be more conducive for innovation in these technologies, particularly in partnerships that include uh, Chinese and U.S. firms. Um, and there's some interesting work going on in this area in the context of the, the U.S. China Clean Energy Research Center, which is a, a DOE most um, bilateral initiative. Um, I'll stop there and, and look forward to any questions you all have. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joanne. I'll ask one quick question, then we'll open it to the floor. I, I guess I wanted to ask about um, prospects for Chinese direct investment in clean energy in the United States. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick uh, primer on what's happening with that and prospects for the future? Yeah. Can everybody, I mean, can everybody hear that, by the way? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Um, I mean, I think that uh, the main barrier to Chinese clean energy investment in the United States right now is political uh, more than anything else. Um, uh, part of it is 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 about the fact that almost all of the companies I just you know showed you from China, all the wind turbines that are going up in China, they have very few years of operating experience, right? So these, this is new technology essentially, even if it's based on uh, state of the art foreign technology or it's been um, you know built with uh, foreign partnerships. A lot of it is new and has only been uh, the most advanced technology in particular has only been up and running for a couple of years. So I think part of the issue is when you see U.S. investors looking at Chinese wind turbines, they want to know, you know, can, is this going to run for 20, 30 years, which is what you would expect the lifetime would be of a wind farm. And um, we don't have that data yet. You see some of the firms like Goldwind, uh, for example, the first thing they did when they came into the, Chinese, the U.S. market is got three wind turbines up and running in Minnesota so they could start actually um, you know, recording the uh, the data, the, the production data from that, and and how uh, effective the the technology is. So I think that's actually been a really a positive thing for them in terms of sending signals to U.S. investors. But uh, from where I sit in Washington, it's it's obviously a very sensitive topic when you have uh, the president talking about green jobs and um, the sensitivities associated with Chinese firms coming in and. Um, and uh, potentially, you know, taking some of these U.S. green jobs. I think this is somewhat misleading um, sort of conflict because a lot of the firms I just told you about have global supply chains. Uh, GE, right, our leading U.S. winter manufacturer, doesn't manufacture all their components in the United States. You know, that's not a shock to most people. Uh, they have a very globalized supply chain. And, and so 
uh, we have to, I think, think about what we mean by sort of Chinese-owned or, or U.S.-owned technology and, and really just use the best technology. All right, questions. You had a question. If people could please just identify themselves before they ask their please. question, that would be great. Uh, hello, uh, Dr. Lewis, uh, Tristan Zhang, Helix Capital Partners. Thank you. Um, my first question uh, is, all right, I'll make you one question. Um, uh, what, what percentage um, of the 90% market share as you mentioned in 2012, is actually state-owned, and what percentage is actually, you know, privatized businesses? And as I mentioned before, what type of cities are popular now with this? Okay, so I think I gave you a 2010 market share. So it's it, it may have changed slightly. For oh, I don't have the 2012 numbers yet, but um, to give you a sense, I mean, I I just saw actually the 2012 global top 10 win list, which is I think about to come out, and. Um, you had these basically top three Chinese winter manufacturers. I think actually it's probably four now. So you've got uh, Goldwyn, Sinefeld, Dongfeng, uh, Minyang, and maybe one or two others, which are in the global top ten now. So you know, in terms of global market share, most of which is in China, but because it's such a big. Um, and the the top three I just mentioned, Goldwyn, Sinefeld, and Dongfeng, are all partially state owned. Yeah, more or less. Right? Yeah, more or less. So that they, that is the majority of market share still, for the most part, state owned. Um, and then in terms of where, uh, I mean, I mentioned Inner Mongolia, uh, particularly Eastern Inner Mongolia has really been where we've seen a, a really large concentration. They're starting to do offshore, but they've had a lot of uh, obstacles with that, particularly over overlapping government um, uh, regulations, not unlike what's, what's happening here. Um, essentially, early wind power development started in Western China because that's where many of the best wind resources are, but the demand is in Eastern China. And just like here in the U.S., they, they run into transmission Issues, so they're trying to do more in the east. Uh, yes, you know, uh, Martin Rubin, I'm, trying to, I'm curious as to how much bureaucratic, um, what impediment or encouragement there was to developing the industry. And I don't want you to go into great detail, but I'm just wondering because of the problems with the environmental movement and everything else, which bureaucracies might have gotten more influential, or if they've gotten more influential in terms of these, these kind of programs? Yeah, well, I think that um, when you look at what's the motivating factor within China for developing this industry as well as some of their others, um, it's not environmental necessarily, as you might imagine, right? I mean, you do see China's clean energy targets and such mentioned in their climate change plans and their other plans, but, um, I mean, as I mentioned, this is still small in terms of total energy and total emissions reduction potential. So it's not really solving their air pollution problems or their climate change problems. Uh, what it is is an industrial policy. It's a strategic industrial policy. It's about, um, you know, it's actually targeted in the 12 five-year plan as the strategic emerging industry, the new energy industries. And so um, this is really about sort of China transitioning to the older industri heavy industry sectors and into these newer areas. So not just renewable energy, um, vehicles, biotechnology, information technology. Um, thank you. Uh, yes, Steve Looney, Field Agents in New York. Uh, how does the cost of, of, uh, of the generation compare to coal, say, and wind in China? Yeah. Or um, you sure. I mean, the tricky thing with coal. Uh, Coal power in China is that it's it's subsidized pretty heavily. So um, you know, essentially, rule of thumb, like two to three cents kilowatt hour for coal wind. The feed-in tariffs are um, closer well, that's to the, that's the price, but the cost of the generation. Ah, the cost. Well, it's I mean, it's it's cheap. <laughs> I mean, it, it, 
you you know if you're not including environmental regulations and things like this, it's it's very cheap, less than two cents. Let me ask it a different way. Yeah. What would cause um, a province or a city or, or however it's bought in China, or how it could cause an electric utility, whoever buys it, mm -hmm. to choose wind power energy versus okay. coal? Well, it's a somewhat different question because that's not necessarily a cost or a price driven calculation because there are several policies in place right. that mandate. Renewable shares, right? And um, I mean, I think the places where you would choose it would either be in places where uh, you don't have access to cheap coal. China has a lot of coal, but they're actually a net coal importer, as you probably know, and the coal is not necessarily located where they need it. It's, it's not in eastern China. They spend a lot of money shipping. Not, not well interconnected, no. It's, there's multiple regional grids, some of which are, are connected. So, um, so there's a lot of decisions. It's, it's sort of a long conversation, right? But I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a question of resources, of regulation, of incentives, and all these things on top of each other. Yes. Ava Chan, I'm president of Chan Company Asia Solutions. I have a business question. Um, on a uh, to understand this sort of in a, on a quality um, scale, um, uh, on the value proposition, would you be able to tell us, let's say, uh, wind turbines expensive, wind turbines reasonable? Are, are the value proposition that the more expensive one produces more kilowatts, maybe megawatts, or how 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 does that um, um, correlation? Sure. Um, yes, I'm a professor, not an investor in wind projects, so I can only tell you, you know, based on the conversations I have and, and the data that I see. But I mean, you know. Um, and like I said, you know, I, I think there's reasons you, that China's doing this that are not just because of cost or value or it's about strategic industrial uh, positioning as well as, you know, all these other factors we've discussed. Um, but, you know, wind is one of the most uh, low-cost, commercially viable, low-carbon technologies out there today. Uh, there's not a lot of other great options, honestly. Solar is still more expensive, uh, even though the costs have come down quite substantially in recent years. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest in natural gas, uh, not just here, but in China as well. Uh, but China gets very, very little of their electricity from natural gas at this point. And so even if they were to discover these amazing uh, resources and, uh, you know, be able to uh, get fracking technology and, and build this up and do this in a way that uh, the regulations support, I think you're still looking at very small percentage. So a bit of it's, you know, sort of trade-offs and in what you're what you're interested in, but if you're looking for a low emissions technology, it's it's uh, it's been relatively viable. Uh, yes, Bar Christopher, the Arkin Group. Um, to what degree, uh, with regard to the development of turbines as, a, as an industrial policy, to what degree is there uh, has there been articulated a future goal for turbines for export, uh, mm -hmm. and if so? You mean articulated in terms of actual national policy, right. or yeah. uh, no? Or, I, or if not articulated national yeah. policy, you know. I think the real market. drive from—I mean, essentially, the reason why they haven't been exported is it, the main reason has just been the market's been so large within China that there's been no reason the demand has been sufficient, you know. Um, and so uh, now that supply is starting to exceed demand, now that you don't just have one Chinese winter manufacturer, you have potentially hundreds. Um, uh, you know, competition is much tighter, and so that's one reason that a lot of the Chinese firms are looking to export. Uh, there is some overcapacity. This has been a much more of an issue in solar uh, recently than in wind, but um, I think that's one, that's one driver. So it's not so much an industrial policy to you know move Chinese products overseas or anything. It's really a, it's a 
it's an individual firm decision to, to try to stay competitive. Uh, let's see, we'll see. Karen in the back of the room. Karen Christensen, Berkshire Politics. Um, I'm wondering, is, is there pro professional opportunity for young Americans to work in green tech in China or vice versa? And how would that look? Sure, well, I think there's a lot of different models for that. Um, if you want to work in China, of course, the language is, is quite helpful. And so <laughs> I always tell my students, remind them of that fact. But, um, you know, I, I have students that are working for Goldwyn in the U.S. And, and, you know, around the world. And so I think, you know, particularly as these firms move into foreign markets and want expertise, I mean, I think I use Goldwyn as an example because I look at them quite a bit in my book. They're, they're obviously not the only company doing this, but... I think they've been quite smart in that as they move to the U.S., they're very aware of the political concerns that they're, they're going to be facing. And so they actually hired a, a very experienced U.S.-based CEO and American, right, to run their U.S. Out, outpost. And, um, you know, they've really brought uh, a lot of, of U.S.-based expertise to, um, to them. And, and, you know, someone who wasn't familiar with the brand and the name would look at them and, and not actually recognize they were a, a Chinese winter manufacturer. So... Um, I think there's, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to bring uh, particularly localized expertise to the industries, but even within China, um, I think there's, there's multiple ways. I mentioned the operation and maintenance challenges that are being dealt with and the, particularly the technical challenges. Uh, so I work a lot with, a, for example, the Energy Foundation, which brings over uh, international experts to try to, to, to help with this. Ireland, for example, is an interesting case because you wouldn't necessarily expect that Ireland's wind power development has a lot of lessons for China, but they're actually very coal-based coal grid with wind. And so uh, in China, where they're trying to balance uh, wind energy with coal electricity, which is quite challenging, there, there's a lot of interesting, uh, I think, international experience to be shared. Mark Mitchell, Woodlake Group. Uh, I understand Goldwyn is getting its, or has already gotten its turbines approved for sale to our grid through FERC. Are there any other Chinese turbine manufacturers that are started that process, the approval process? I don't know. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know that there were several that were buying for a recent DOE demonstration project for offshore uh, technology, but I, I haven't heard yet. Yes. Yeah, offshore has been interesting to follow um, because just a few years ago there were very aggressive targets announced for offshore wind power development in China, um, but this has really stalled quite a bit, um, primarily due to some of the regulatory challenges I mentioned, so um, and also due to technical challenges. So regulatory challenges being, you know, essentially the the government agencies which are responsible for promoting wind power and setting these targets, uh, NDRC, uh, primarily. Uh, are running into conflict with some of the agencies which regulate the coastal uh, coastal zone in China. There are some security issues associated with coastal development and access, uh, not to mention the fact that a lot of coastal, eastern coastal China, particularly around Shanghai, where they were looking to do this development, is um, sort of intertidal zones, muddy area. I don't know if you've, if you've been outside of Shanghai to the islands um, right there, but they're really looking to build up a lot of wind there, but have run into problems where you actually can't get the equipment um, that can go through this sort of muddy intertidal area. We have equipment for sort of deep water 
development and for coastal development, but it's been quite expensive to try to get the right technology to do it in these intertidal areas. Um, so I think that's been one, but I think there's a lot of reasons why they, and I should say the other reason it's stalled is because of cost. <laughs> it's a lot more expensive to do offshore, and China still has a fair amount of onshore sites available. The countries that are doing offshore, primarily northern Europe, it's because they essentially have exhausted all their viable onshore sites. Other questions? All right. <laughs> One more question, and if this is out of, you know, if it's something you know, that, that's not possible, not possible. Out of all the companies that you've looked at, yeah. um, and I, from your charts from here, I, I can see there were a lot of them, I couldn't read every name. Which company or which uh, group, because they, they, they seem to be uh, lineated in some form of, of, of either dash lines or clear that or straight lines, <clears throat> which groups would you think make, would make very interesting business needs? Um, I'm really not comfortable answering that question only because I <laughs> like to keep a neutral stance on this as, a, as an academic rather than a, a business person. But I, you know, I'm happy to, to chat offline. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll yes, one more. Right. Uh, sure. Maybe he can tell you. <laughs> Oh, it's an interesting question. I mean, in many ways, they're very different industries. Um, you know, and, and I think one thing that's been really different about the the wind case is that it's been a very domestic, domestic industry, domestically driven uh, by the policies I mentioned. Whereas Chinese solar industry was really driven by German solar subsidies, <laughs> you know, as well as a, a few other countries. And so, um, it, it's really been a different different structures in terms of how they've evolved. Um, but I think that today you actually see both industries uh, running into some of the same challenges um, with the economic situation. Um, you know, those industries are suffering not just in China but around the world as governments sort of, you know, decide to what extent they want to continue to support these technologies. Um, although the costs have done, come down quite a bit, for the most part they are still reliant on a lot of uh, different policies in, in this country, for example, the production tax credit, which it looked like wouldn't be renewed and then ultimately was. Um, so I think that, you know, within the wind and solar industries in China, there's a lot of overcapacity, a lot of firms running into trouble. Uh, the government is trying to now decide to what extent it should be trying to save these firms, these industries, and looking into ways to do this, which aren't just artificially propping them up and throwing money at them, but uh, trying to encourage innovation to make sure they can stay competitive in the future. Uh, so I think there's a lot of strategic thinking going on um, right now about, you know, should should the government be, be supporting these sort of older solar firms um, or the ones who are really at the cutting edge and are developing the technologies which you know, the industry will, will likely use tomorrow and make them more competitive, not just in China, but globally. And given how fast things have changed in the last 10 years, uh, or really since 2007, Uh, I think it just it's, it depends on policy decisions which are made not just by China but by other countries. I mean, you've seen in the news recently the impacts of China's reliance on coal. Um, it's it's not just you know a 
it's, it's about not just about climate change, it's about local air pollution, public health. Um, and so it's just, it's not a sustainable trajectory for them to put in, you know, 100 gigawatts of coal a year. It's come down a little bit, um, but you're still seeing quite substantial growth in that area. And, um, you know, you see for the first time the Chinese government talking about putting a, a cap on total coal use, I think four, 4 billion tons by 2015. Um, which I think I heard they may have exceeded slightly this year, so I'm not quite sure um, how how they're going to do this. But I think this, these are the types of conversations you would have never heard right. five years ago. Um, and if you see these these sorts of policies that actually start to limit coal use um, and encourage these other technologies, um, because coal is cheap, it, it gets built, but it, it has a huge environmental cost, and that's it's not just an environmental cost; it's a social cost, it's an economic cost. Um, and I think this is really, uh, you know, this is hitting home, and, and I think you'll see a lot more policies deployed in the next few years. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Sam Sir from Woodlake Group. I may be taking you out of your field of um, expertise, but can you talk about natural gas and shale gas? Because our experience is that we're, we're working with uh, folks out there mm-hmm. on the shale gas business specifically, and the interest of coming here and then going there, maybe you can tell us, because that trajectory you had is not sustainable. So I think uh, shale gas may help, but I don't know what it does to carbon carbon emissions. Right, I mean, well, I mean, if if all the coal I just showed you were replaced by shale gas, it'd be a a net benefit. It still emits carbon, but but far less. Um, But but you're not, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, uh, China gets so little, uh, uses so little natural gas um, at the moment, you're you're talking about scaling up from a very small but percentage. They've done it before. They've done it before. It's certainly possible, and I, I certainly can't speculate on either the, the reserves or the the viability of, of their ability the to. Reserves do. are very large. Yeah, I believe. I mean, I think the issue is going to be um, how to do it uh, in a way that doesn't run into any uh, technical, or environmental, or, or other challenges. Uh, but I have no doubt it will. It will uh, be a large area in the next few years. Um, Marco? Marco Landon from the National Committee. You had said earlier that the reasons for the development of wind turbines and energy were not environmental, but in your answer to this gentleman's question, you made it sound as though there's been a shift and that now there may be scaling up specifically for environmental reasons. Do you think that's an accurate um, reading of what might be happening and into the future? Yeah, oh, I, I guess I wasn't necessarily saying there's been a big shift. I just mean that this, you know, the recent air pollution situation has certainly um, elevated this once again. I should say once again, because this has happened many times before, right? Um, and so... Um, I think it remains to be seen whether the current situation is actually going to actually be a turning point, as you as you say. I mean, I think that um, if you look at the numbers, it's very hard to figure out how wind or gas <laughs> or nuclear uh, displaces coal in China completely. Um, but when you start to look at a portfolio of all these technologies together, along with others, uh, along with, I should say, energy efficiency, which I haven't <coughs> talked about this evening, but... Uh, I also work on it as an extremely important area and an area where China's already been able to make very impressive gains because if you can bring down the consumption line, it gets a lot easier to um, to start to replace coal with all these other technologies. So, you know, I think that 
certainly environment is, is a driver. I didn't mean to say it's not a driver, but I just meant it's not the primary driver. Um, it's one of a set of drivers along with um, the others I mentioned. And, and I think that um, it will increasingly become one. And climate change is, is as well increasingly becoming a driver. A lot of the uh, carbon targets which are now being set and the carbon policies that are being implemented in China, uh, there's several new pilot cap-and-trade programs for CO2, for example, which are being uh, set up right now. Uh, they, they wouldn't be able to meet these if the renewable energy targets weren't simultaneously met. We have time for just one more question. Um, John, do you have a question? John Lowe from the National Committee. I'm assuming the, the graph that you showed early on, I think you said from the Department of Energy, about... Uh, the scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, the so I'm assuming that that data is a year or two old now, uh, the projections for... It's their last uh, international energy outlook, so probably last year, yeah. I'm just wondering, as you know, given the last 12 months, given Armageddon, given mm -hmm. other political factors, whether you look at that chart and say uh, there, this is accurate and China can continue to increase its greenhouse gas emissions at that very steep trajectory going forward in the next 25 years, or whether there is a ceiling and that that, that, that graph is, yeah. you know, is not a, a, a good crystal ball reading of what the future holds. Yeah. Um, well, I can certainly tell you it's not a good crystal ball <laughs> reading of the future only because these scenarios never are, um, and particularly scenarios of China's carbon emissions have been notoriously inexact. Um, you know, the the Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, you know, does projections as, as well as any other anyone else does of China. But uh, they, you know, projected in I think 2004 that uh, Chinese emissions were going to surpass U.S. emissions sometime after 2030, and this happened in 20, 2007, right? So um, we never quite know. I mean, there was there was explosive growth in the the, the later part of the last decade that no one necessarily predicted, um, just as we wouldn't have necessarily predicted some of the slow. Uh, the slowing down. And so, you know, I think it, it's similar to my answer to Margot's question. It really depends on the policy decisions that they make in the next few years. It's all, none of this is set in stone. None of this is a crystal ball. It, it all is, is based on um, trajectories. The, these lines are just extending out <laughs> the slope of the last few years, essentially. And uh, that slope can, can change very quickly. Uh, presentation.